Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Danya Bassi. Danya is a litigation associate in Foley's Houston office. And in this discussion, Danya reflects on growing up in San Antonio, Texas, attending the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Houston Law Center. And Danya is sort of hilarious. So I think you're going to enjoy our talk. We cover a lot of ground. Danya discusses moving from Karachi, Pakistan to the U.S. when she was three. She talks about her family's adjustment, including an interesting way that her mother learned English. And also, before we get to the discussion of college and law school, Danya reflects on time spent in marching band, specifically playing French horn, and just the intensity of that experience. Next, she unpacks the experience in college, and you learn how she sort of stumbled her way to law school. She clearly does not regret the decision, but as she says, she was not someone who knew she wanted to be a lawyer. I, of course, then get Danya to talk about how it was she ends up at Foley, how she chose her practice area, and we then talk about her day-to-day practice and the advice she has to young lawyers. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Danya Abasi. Danya, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you start like every other guest on the show starts, which is, can you please give me your professional introduction? Sure. Uh, my name is Danya Abasi. I am a third-year associate in the Houston office of Foley and Lardner. My practice is mostly commercial litigation. And of course, because I'm here in Houston, I handle a lot of energy type matters. But in the last couple of years, I've branched out a little bit into Jedi work, which has been really fun. And we're going to unpack what JEDI means. But for now, let's not. Oh, let's leave will. people waiting as to what that acronym, that really cool sounding acronym. They can picture my lightsaber in the background, like on my wall or something. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be great. Yep. But before we jump into all of the ins and outs of your practice, let's get into a little bit of your origin story, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? And by the way, me saying origin story is already going along with this JEDI theme. But okay, yeah. What's your superhero origin story? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. And my family moved to to San Antonio, Texas when I was three years old. So I grew up in San Antonio and kind of just lived there, elementary school, middle school, high school. I went to college at UT in Austin, Texas. And then from there, I spent a year teaching English at a French public high school in France. And then I went to law school. I love that you just gave me the preview. You gave me the preview, know, and I'm right? not going to let you get away. I'm not going to be like, great, <laughs> no, <I> moving <laughs> on, podcast over. <laughs> we have to unpack all of that. Okay, you just gave me the life summary almost, and I have to take you back to the, I was born in Pakistan and then moved to San Antonio, Texas. So what precipitated that? How, like, why? I was going to say how, but like, why did your family make that move? So my dad actually in the 70s moved to go to college in California. And so he was always working in like the hospitality industry. So he moved to Texas to take a job at the Dominion Golf Club, which is kind of like Texas's, I don't know, like fancy country club, but it's like a, a golf club in San Antonio that's like very fancy. 
And when he and my mom got married, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he had one sister. She was living in San Antonio with her kids. And so when the decision was made that life would be better in America, the very random place of San Antonio, Texas was chosen to move over to. Okay. And just to make sure I'm following and hopefully the listeners don't just think I'm dense, but so your dad was here and then went back and then came back here. That's right. So he was in California working. He went back for a few years. My parents got married. At that time, his aunt was living in San Antonio. And when we moved, my grandfather, my dad's dad, came with us. And so to be close to family, San Antonio it was. And do you have any recollection? Because you were three, you probably don't really remember anything about it. I don't. My dad tells this story of how when he came to pick us up from the airport, I like didn't really recognize him at first because I was like, who this? And then after a minute, I he like saw in my eyes that I figured <laughs> oh, out who father. this was. Yeah. But I I remember being little. I remember my grandfather being there. Unfortunately, he died a year later. So we did not have the most time together here. But I remember the four of us living in a little house. So it's vaguely there. Well, it's just interesting to ask because some people will have like certain, it sounds like there is like a little bit of an impression, but yeah, three is is pretty early. And I know I don't remember really anything from when I was three. Yeah. Um, and we will jump in more to talk about you shortly, but it's, I, do you have any other just reflections on how it was for your family or your parents adjusting? And your dad had already been here in California so, and there was family. So that, I'm, that certainly helped, but it's still an adjustment, I imagine. It was an adjustment for sure. So my mom had a tough time. She never lived here. She didn't speak English. And so she always tells the story of how she and my aunt, so there's a family, right? And so my dad's aunt's kids, we called them my aunts, even though I guess they're second cousins once removed or something like that. My mom and my aunt used to sit on the couch and watch ER because ER started in 1995 when we moved to the United States. And so they watched ER and that's how like they that's picked how, up. how they learned English. <laughs> yeah. And like the show was like so fast talking, like everyone was always, always talking. I don't know if you've ever seen ER. I remember it was, that's right. They did talk really fast. Yeah. Whenever she tells that story, I'm like, mom, like you were learning like medical jargon. Like you couldn't have watched like a sitcom of like a family living in the suburbs. <laughs> But yeah, she like, she, I think she had a tough time. She came, she like learned how to drive. Like she learned how to like do all these things that just were not a part of her life living in, you know, with her parents in like an affluent neighborhood in Karachi. So a couple things I would say if she would have watched a sitcom, the words per minute would have been a lot lower. So she probably just like hastened her learning <laughs> by watching ER. But then also it is interesting to reflect back on things. I know you were, you know, three and then you know, four, five, six as your family's adjusting. But there's just things I think we don't realize about our parents' own experience when we're kids because we look to them as all-knowing that once we're adults, we can be like, wow, that must have been really hard. <laughs> like, Wait a second. I, you're a person? What? Yeah. Struggles? We, we, I think we're all, we all do that. It's probably not until you hit like 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, 50s, where some people you're like, oh, wow. Okay. You are not, you weren't endowed with all the knowledge of the universe. <laughs> Got it. Um, all right. So let's now talk about you. Let's talk about little Danya in San Antonio. So let's say I found you. I don't know, late elementary school, early middle school. What sort of kid were you? What were you into? Hobbies, sports? So I read a crap ton of books. I was just like always reading books. My eyesight got so bad at the age of eight because I would sit in the dark and read books. And my parents were like, stop that. You like are going to mess up your eyes. I'm going to play this for my children, by the way, because I say that to them right now. But like, see, she did get glasses. Look. 
I had that classic experience of like, you know, in the in school when you do the eye test where they tell you to cover one eye and read the chart. I could not for the life of me. I was absolutely faking it and asking people what the answers were. Yeah. And they're like, tell us what's on the bottom line. And you're like, yep. there's the bottom mm-hmm. line. But there's can't, not a bottom line here. I can't see it. And I remember the teacher telling my parents, they were just so shocked. And I was like, how are you shocked? You know what I do at night. Like, I don't understand why you're feigning surprise right now, but fine. So I had these big old glasses and I was reading a lot of books. I was not very sporty, I would say. With my cousins, we played a lot of like tennis in the street. So like if anything, and that's the one thing that has stuck with me. I still play a lot of tennis. Really? And that's that's not nothing to say not sporty, but even even in the street, like you were outside running around doing stuff. I think it counts. Yes, absolutely. It was tennis in the street and razor scooters being outside. That's what we did. I love that. That's a perfect snapshot. And I would say a good, at least half of the lawyers I have on this show, bookish. Yeah. <laughs> could be could be used to describe them. And then you also get a number who were like real athletes. So, th- you know, that one of the points of this show is that you just list, learn through stories that there's actually different types of people attracted so to law. weird. I don't, I don't know. I do it, think but... there's, some, there's some through lines for sure, but yeah. everybody's a little bit different. Okay. But take me now to say high school. And you are navigating that process to go to college. What's the thought process? Where did you go? So I, starting in middle school and through all of high school, was a big band kid. Like I played the French horn starting in sixth grade and I just kept going. And I don't know That's if you know random, anything. by the way. I yeah, didn't expect French weird. horn it's out of all the weird. Yep. It's kind of a tough one. It's a tough one to learn. It's a tough one to be good at. Middle school and high school, playing the French horn. I don't know if you know anything about marching band in Texas, but it's kind of like a whole subculture. I bet it's serious. That's what that's what my guess would be. There's competitions and like exhibitions. And so every year you go to like a regional competition and then a super regional and then like a national competition. I'm sorry. Is this starting in sixth grade or into high school? Like high what, school. how does this? High okay. School. 5A high schools in Texas will have very strong or not so strong marching band programs. <laughs> And depending on the district and school that you attend, you can be going to competitions for marching band. And was that you? So were you going Absolutely. to competitions? Uh-huh. I love how you made it uh, this abstract. Like some people, some people were going to co- competitions. They were. It was some people. It was you, Danya. Mm-hmm, it was me. <laughs> and yeah, it was just like a really tight knit group of friends. Because of this, the way that our school schedule was set up, if we needed to, we needed to have band first period. Then all of our other classes lined up, and so. Like, I felt like I went to school with the same, like, 100 people from sixth grade to the end of high school because they were like, we were always just all around each other. Yeah. And I remember graduating and like sitting at graduation. And because of my last name, I'm a little bit blessed. I'm always at the top of most. (laughs) Maybe even first. Right. (laughs) Right. So I graduated first and I sat there and listened to the names of people as they were called and like saw them walk across the stage. And I was like, who are these people? Yeah. And my graduating class was big. It was 600 something people. I went to a big high school, but I was a little disappointed in myself for like not like at all branching out and like getting to know people that I didn't always see. But the people you knew, you knew really well. You exactly. Were traveling and doing all sorts of things together. And I absolutely it's funny. I think perhaps when we talk about, you know, like band kids or maybe even band geeks, not to not to be offensive. No. You know, people might have some preconceived notion, but there's a lot of work. Like from what I've heard heard from others, because I I did not I played piano, so that just like knocked me out of being in band. It just never happened. <laughs> but there's an intensity to that that I think sometimes people forget about. And I have picked that up from those who had the experience. 
We used to march outside on a parking lot under the sun in the summer. And, you know, it's like 90 degrees outside for like two hours every day after school, sometimes three, sometimes on Saturdays. It was a big time commitment. It really was. Wow. So how does this play into the college decision? I'm wondering, did you, were you in marching band in college? Tell me more. Not at all. Marching band did not play into college at all. I had no aspirations to be any sort of like professional musician. French horn, no. French horn scholarship, something. Nothing. It was no. just like it felt just like a cool thing I did, and I put it on my resume, and I felt like good about like the fact that I had been involved in something a long time, and that I'd found friends. But like, there's people that join marching band in college. Like band at UT yeah, is absolutely. like a big thing. Yeah, longhorn band. I just no interest. <laughs> Do you still have your French horn? I don't. And actually, I never owned one. With a lot of bigger instruments, the schools own them. You're so, right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so then how do you decide what, what happens with college? What? Yeah, I applied to college with absolutely no idea of what I'm going to do. I don't really pick a major. I aim really high. I was high in my class, so I aim really high when I'm applying to college. I applied to eight schools, which I will not name, and I'm waitlisted at all of them. Oh. But because of Texas's... They have a, it's a local rule about if you're in a certain percentage in your class, you have automatic acceptance to Texas public schools. So I was lucky to be in that range. And so I applied to University of Texas and was automatically accepted. And at that time in my life, and I'm sure you're going to want to hear more about this, some stuff was happening. And so automatic acceptance into a school where I didn't have to worry about it and it was close and I could drive there was, that was easy enough. I didn't pick a major. I was like, I'll figure it out once I actually start going to school. <laughs> Regards to the stuff that was happening, we'll talk about whatever you're comfortable diving into. But I am curious with your parents' thoughts on where you attended. I only ask because I've had a few other people on the show who are essentially like, you know, first generation Americans. And there was sometimes some sort of like level of familial influence, either in that the parents weren't quite sure how to guide them or had really strong opinions. What was your experience? So my parents are great in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, they annoy me. But one of the ways that they were great is that I never felt that brown kid pressure of like, be this, be that. You have to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. And I feel like that's like a refrain for people that look like me. They only ever said like, do whatever you want, but make sure you can have a career out of it. Just like, don't be stuck in a situation in which you have to like they're like we're here for you but we'd rather not have to support you as you you know enter your 20s and 30s and I got that they got to pay for yourself yeah <laughs> right they've got their own stuff to deal with and so I never felt like I needed to do anything specific but I think the flip side of that is that for a very long time I did not know what I was doing mm. so there's definitely two sides to that coin, but they were great. Which is tough, though. But I think a lot of people, particularly in retrospect, you realize you had no idea what you were doing, even if you thought you did because you'd randomly decided. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a genuine feeling that you at least knew at the time mm-hmm. <laughs> that you yep. you didn't know. <laughs> so you go to college, and I'm assuming you start, obviously, like some sort of undeclared, or did you just pick something? Or yep. What did, yep, yep, yep. So, and it's two questions, I guess. It's like, what was the experience like of going to college? How was that adjustment? And then, yeah, what was, what did you end up majoring in? So I got there. I was living in a giant dorm with like, I don't even know, its own zip code. Like it had that many people in it, right? I picked some classes. There's a lot of stuff you have to take, right? Like intro, bio, like these, like a math class. The general education, whatever. Yeah. And I took a developmental psychology class, like how brains become brains. 
And that was the one thing that like actually I thought was really interesting. And so I pulled up the degree program for psychology majors at the University of Texas. And I was like, that looks doable. I could probably do that. So first year of college, I feel like I didn't do a lot. I will be honest with you. I was just kind of right though for for freshman year of college. (laughs) I was going to class and I watched a lot of friends on DVD because it wasn't on Netflix yet. And yeah, that was really it. Just trying to like study and not mess up because I feel like I'd heard too many stories of people going to college and just being like, eh, class, whatever. I'll just sleep through it. So I did try to focus a little bit. (laughs) I am now curious because obviously I can see what you ultimately did receive a degree in and you've mentioned French earlier. Something changed. What changed? Yeah. So if you get a psych degree, you need a two semester equivalence in a foreign language. So you have to take two semesters of any foreign language. And I wanted to take Portuguese with no basis. I wanted to take Portuguese for absolutely no reason. I just thought it was cool. Whenever you hear someone speak Portuguese, you're like, wow, it's a sexy language. I don't learn how to speak that. But the Portuguese class was at 8 a.m. And I was not going to be taking an 8 a.m. class. It was Absolutely not. I was not doing that. So I looked at other languages and there was a French class that started at 1030. And I was like, far more reasonable. I can do that. I can do that. You're also taking me back to college because that 8 a.m. fear was real because also in college, and this is coming from someone who now is routinely in bed before 10, (laughs) you, I wouldn't go to sleep until very late usually it was well after midnight so 8 a.m was just like I felt very yeah yeah. just nocturnal I felt so nocturnal yes yes like I didn't really feel like myself until like 4 p.m you know so right so French wins basically basically the same as Portuguese (laughs) exactly it's the same same deal so I took one class and then I took my second class and I could have stopped at that point and then I just kept taking the classes because It was really interesting. I felt like I was good at it. I was already bilingual. So I think that helped me. And I like, it was consistently, I was getting good grades and it felt easy and it felt like I didn't need to do a lot of work. And then there was actually a study abroad program that I wanted to do after my junior year for which you needed to have taken a certain number of classes. And I was like, okay, I'll get to that number. Then I'll do the study abroad program and then I'll stop. And obviously I did not stop. And I just kept taking the classes. At one point I had enough credits for a minor and then I only needed so many more to also get a major, get major. In it. And yep. that was it. So it's a double major in, I was going to say psychology, but that's not it right. Is. It's psycholo- the first? psychology. It is psychology. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's so interesting adding the French though, because it's a little bit later, certainly to add on a foreign language. Like for a lot of people, they would have started that in like middle school or high school. Yeah. So Texas, I took Spanish, Spanish, pre-AP Spanish. Like I took the AP Spanish test in high school. And I feel like there's a lot of Spanish in this, the city of Houston, Absolutely. right? And I feel yeah. like I can hear it and understand what's being said, but have no vocabulary to respond, if that makes sense. So it stuck with me a little bit, but I don't I don't know why I didn't stick with it. It's kind of strange. <laughs> but also your comment about already being bilingual bilingual, because so you're speaking is it Hindi? Urdu. Say it again. Urdu U R D U. Urdu, which I'm totally not going to say with the proper accent. I don't Um, think it's really possible for you to say it with the proper accent. Probably not. Well, and I also just think what you were saying, picking up another language, there's probably some level of like neuroplasticity to begin with from already operating from like multiple sides of your brain, essentially. My parents, that's another thing they were really good about. They were like, we will not speak English in this house when you were a child. Like, there's no point. You're going to learn English in school. And we would rather you be able to speak to your relatives and have that piece of your brain running really hot. So I'm glad that they did that. 
And apparently it was. All right. So that's college. Then what happens? Because I'm not hearing the I'm going to be a lawyer part yet. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I still had no idea what I was doing. I got to senior year of college. So I had spent a couple years, three years working at Texas Performing Arts, which is Austin's Broadway across America sort of like home. So I worked in a theater and like I worked in like ticketing and guest services. And so like Broadway shows would come through and concerts, comedians, like fine arts, every type of fine art you can imagine. I was selling tickets to and sneaking into shows for. (laughs) But again, that was like not something that I was really interested in. It was a cool way to get some money and get some free tickets. Yeah, that sounds great to see who's coming through town. Wonderful. I was working there all through school. I worked there after graduating. Like I worked the summer and still no idea. And I heard about this program. The French Ministry of Education sponsors this program for foreigners, so non-French people, to come to France and teach their native language to high school students in public French high schools. And so one of the people that I'd studied abroad with, who was a year ahead of me, had done this program and was singing its praises about how you get paid like $5, but it's really fun. Because yeah, and you're in France. Yeah. Like you yeah, get to go to France. Exactly. You get to go yeah. to France. It's for a school year. So 10 months. You don't work that much, quite frankly. It was 12 hours a week of actual class plus planning wow. of classes. Yeah. And you get a ton of vacation because they're very generous with their vacation over there. So like every two months, students get a two-week break. And I was like, well, that sounds like a great idea. I'll just do that and just keep giving myself reasons to not make a decision about what I want to do with my life. It'll be perfect. Yep. So I go to France. And where? Where in France? So I live in a little town just northwest of Paris, like 40 miles. So it's like a commute. It's like the last stop on the commuter train. That's actually, it sounds pretty fortunate because I was going to say, I think people think of France and they only think of Paris. Right. And you can also end up in a Mm, small village far, far away. (laughs) A lot of people did. Um, So the way it works is that there's like 15 regions that you you rank. So you pick three regions and you're like, these are my top three regions of where I would like to be assigned if you accept me into this program. And you can get lucky. You can get not so lucky. The regions are also huge. You could be like in the main city for it, or you could be God knows where in like some tiny Beauty and the Beast-esque village. (laughs) Which is still going to be beautiful and you're still in France. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I got lucky. I chose a region and I happened to be in its furthest reach, but the furthest reach happened to be within spitting distance of Paris. So if I wanted to travel or if I wanted to like go to the movie theater, it was not that hard, even though I was in the Beauty and the Beast village. And had you been to France before? Because you did mention you got enough credits to get yeah. so the I did opportunity to do, do that yeah. study abroad. I did, yeah. I did that study abroad program. It was an eight-week program. We did one week in Paris and seven weeks in Lyon, which is, I'm sorry, I'm so bad with my cardinal directions, southeast. It's like very close to the Alps region. It's the second biggest or third biggest city, big food city. It felt very much like Austin. It felt very similar. Oh, interesting. But so you're going back to Paris now for 10 months. How was it? So I know I I know I want to go to school. I know I want further education because that's it's just it's been important for my whole life and my family and we're all big into education. It's the one thing they can't take away from you. So I figure I have to pick something, right? Like there has to be some sort of degree that I'm going to get. And so I considered getting like a PhD level degree in French language and education and culture, but I hated teaching. I hated it so much. I really did not like it. 
So you're like, I could keep doing that, but maybe that's not what I'm going to do. Right. And so my other option really with just like the school that I'd gone to and my interests was law school because I wasn't going to go to school for like to like get an MBA or something like that. Just didn't really intrigue me. So, yeah, I kind of decided it was not again, no real basis to that decision. Right. Like there wasn't some yearning inside me for justice or advocacy. (laughs) It was just, I needed, I needed to go to more school. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of, I hate to say it, but a lot of people end up going to law school. Like you're like, what are the main major, you know, professional (laughs) secondary degree schools? Yeah. You know, I don't want to do business school. I don't want to be a doctor. Law school. Done. So that was it. That was it. I um, signed up for the LSAT. I took the LSAT actually in Paris. I took the December LSAT, but I got in there in August. So I studied because I had a lot of downtime because I wasn't teaching that much class. And it worked out. All right. So we got the connection. And I also appreciate your candor. Although I have to say, I'm probably one of the few people who's been a guest on this show because I did like once have the tables turn at someone interviewed me. I remember, yeah. I I was like, I just knew from a small child I wanted to be a lawyer. I think most of the guests, maybe there's a parent who was a lawyer or some people knew in high school, but a lot... Other things in life happened before law school was on the radar. No, there were no lawyers in my family. I didn't know any lawyers. I don't think I had not connected the idea of lawyers and law school, if that makes sense. (laughs) Like I was very focused on going to law school and I wasn't so much focused on the fact that at the end of it, (laughs) there would be this this other thing. (laughs) And it it clicked eventually, but okay. Yes. All right. So you go to France, which sounds amazing. And I am not, my urge is to ask all about that, but I'm not going to, because we got to get to this law school part. Sure. Sure. You take the LSAT, you find out what your scores and stuff, and mm-hmm. you're also applying while abroad too, I'm right. guessing. Yep. Okay. And so how do you figure out where you're going to go? A lot of Googling. And I figured that I want to stay in Texas and the internet will tell you that there's a few major markets for legal professionals and that Houston is definitely one of them. So I applied to the Houston law schools. I applied to UT because, you know, why not? And that's really it. I don't really go wide with this one. Like I did in college. I had been burned oh, before. That's, so. <laughs> that's really interesting. And then did you want to stay in Texas because your family was in Texas or you like do you like Texas? I do like Texas. I figured it would be a good place to start a career. And like when you get to that point of your like solidly middle 20s, you're like, all right, I got to think about like cost of living and like yes. things like and very practical. I, well, and where I can see myself just having roots. Like do I want to pick up and be somewhere totally new? Right. Like, am I going to have a harder time if I like go to school in the Northeast where I have no connections, like no real foundation? And then kind of where you go to school is where you start practicing. It's unusual yes, for, for people to do otherwise. For most, like with like a handful of exceptions for like the top, top law exactly, schools. I think that's exactly. absolutely right. All right. So you go to the University of Houston for law school. All right. You start law school. You return from France. Yep. Your parents are presumably still in San Antonio. They are. You go to Houston, you start law school. What was the adjustment like to law school? It wasn't awful because I was still used to a classroom setting and like having my laptop on all the time and like segmenting my days in like very strangely wake up, do nothing class at 2 PM. I didn't feel that far removed, even though I had taken some time, I didn't feel very far removed from going to class, getting out of class, reading for class, getting ready for next class. So that was, I think, helpful. Secondly, I had a friend who graduated college a year later than me who was moving to Houston to um, take in a mechanical engineering job. So I was like, hey, you want to, you know, live together in the same place? Yeah, roommate, save a little money. Be my support system. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was really great because I did not feel out of water. Like I knew 
two or three people here. And I think it helped a lot. I will be frank. I think, no, that really does to have some connections also outside of the walls of the law school. Mm -hmm. I actually know what the answer to this is going to be, but I'm still going to ask. Sure. (laughs) Did you have any sense of what you were going to practice? Like, what are you going in with? You're like, I'm in law school. Now what? Why did you ask that? You know, I know exactly. I knew you were going to say no, No. but I wanted to, because we, we, we're going to explore how you ended up connecting with your current practice area. For sure. No, I had no idea. None at all. And it sounds like schedule-wise, in terms of still being the student mindset, you were there. Did you find sort of the style in which, you know, law school tends to be administered? Was that just fine by you? Or was there some adjustment to, you know, quote unquote, thinking like a lawyer or thinking like a law student? It was strange. I think for a while, I just did not really know what I was doing or what was happening or like why that is the way that it was happening. And I think at a certain point, you're like, okay, I just have to read everything and just like be ready. Or alternatively, you don't do that. Cross your fingers and hope that everyone forgets your name. <laughs> so stressful though to yeah, do it's really that stressful. way. So stressful. It is. And I, I definitely, disclaimer, please don't do this, anyone listening, but I remember a few people in law school who just never went to class. Yeah, no, just I- never. I definitely saw some people that I only saw at the final exam in whatever mm-hmm. given class. Well, yeah, some professors feel very strongly and they will make sure to ruin aspects of you if they can. <laughs> but a lot don't notice. I remember attendance counting. Like I remember there was a sign-in sheet that would go around and you would initialize your name. And I remember somebody, like whenever one of us was late, you'd like be like, all right, can you sign me in? Like I'm actually coming. Like I'm actually coming. Yes, Please I am sign here. Me in. <laughs> There's just yeah, traffic so that, or whatever. That just feels stressful. I just remember thinking... I'd prefer to go to class because often the professor would indicate something that was like clearly either important to them or literally say this will be on the final. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't understand not being Absolutely. there for that. I didn't get it. I remember so many classes where I only knew was able to write a good exam answer because I was writing down what the professor was saying. These are your thoughts about how you feel about this subject. So I'm going to parrot them back at you and you're going to like it. And, like, and hopefully you like it. So yeah. law students, please go to class. Please go to please, class. Yeah. A few you of you may go. not, but please go to class. It's worth it. All right. So I don't know if we want to like talk through, say, 1L Summer. It's funny because I I think I was telling you before we got on the podcast, I haven't had an associate on in the show. So I've been talking to, you know, our more senior partners. So I'm like, all right, I got 30 years to cover. (laughs) So I feel like, Danya, with you, I can be like a little bit more leisurely because I'm like, oh, we're only between law school and your practice. We're like six years. I haven't even lived for 30 years. There you go. I can't do, (laughs) right? I can't do every sort of twist and turn. But let's fast forward to you figuring out where you're going to work for presumably let's say you're 2L summer, how, like, how do you start getting connected with Foley? Why are you here today? We can do 1L because that's, that is how I got here. Oh, perfect. I didn't realize that. Yes. Let's talk about that. How does that come to be? So 1L OCI at the University of Houston is very limited, my 1L year. And now it's a lot bigger, but there are maybe six employers and it's just, it's not a lot. Like no one really expects to be working their 1L summer and actually making money. Particularly at a law firm, you're absolutely exactly. right. And I'll tell you, a lot of schools don't really have much of anything for one. Like nope. there maybe isn't nope. even any, there isn't anything called 1L OCI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But luckily through the Houston Bar Association, there is a program that used to be called MOILIP, Minority Opportunities in the Legal Profession. And is now, it, they've changed the name. I believe it's like HBA, DNI, something like that. It's not MOILIP anymore. But it's basically a mentorship slash employment program for diverse law students at the three Houston law schools. So it's a much smaller pool, and it's basically a second bite at the employment apple. It's a bigger, there are more can there are more options. It's like a bigger OCI pool, but with fewer people in it. 
the program's huge. There are federal judges, there's nonprofit organizations, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of firms. And it's only gotten bigger since then. And that was, I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's like 20, what, 15-ish? It's a while ago. 16, 2016. So yeah, a long time. So there's this firm called Gardeer. And I'm like, I can pick five or six firms that are, five or six employers that I can apply to. I, again, with no basis, picked this firm. It felt like solidly mid-sized, but big in Texas. And I didn't want to work at a big firm. That didn't seem very appealing to me because you hear a lot of horror stories when you're at 1L. Yep. About- we gotta, some, I have to remember to come back to this, yeah, right? Because you, yeah. you ended up at a big firm, right? So we're going to talk about that, but keep yeah. going. So I've gotten recommendations from professors. Like I asked my Civ Pro professor, who I'm quite close to because I TA his class. Um, I'm like, I, I'm thinking of applying to this firm. Do you know anything about it? And he knows one of the more senior associates here in the office. And he says that he sings the firm's praises. I'm like, all right, I'll apply. So I choose my five or six. I kind of aim not very, like, again, I don't want to work at big firms. So I kind of aim at that, like, Porter Hedges, Gardeer, Jackson Walker sort of like here. I'd, like, I'd call it, you know, great firms, more, you know, mid, mid-sized. You know, absolutely. they don't have, they're not, yeah. they're not like fully right now with their 1,100 right. lawyers and 22. Yeah, it's, it's attractive to, I think, summer associates because you figure you'll get more substantive work and not be stuck on like doc review or whatever. Yeah. Not that doc yep. review is bad. I'm a big fan of doc review. <laughs> so I apply and I go on a bunch of interviews. I'm lucky in that I got my best grades my very first semester. I will say if you can get really good grades, law students, it, that is the time to do it. That is a good time to do it. If you can figure out a way to yep. guarantee there, then that's a good time. Agreed. To just really front load all of your good grades. Um, <laughs> so I do that. I, I go on a bunch of interviews and I come into the office here at the Foley office in Houston on I get my interview rescheduled three times because Scott Ellis is so busy. (laughs) You know, Scott's going to listen to this. I know he's going to listen. It's going to be fine. So I come in on 430 on a Friday afternoon and it's only him. And he comes in and he like comes to grab me from reception. And he's like, do you want an espresso? And I was like, sure, let's get an espresso. (laughs) So the Houston office on the 21st floor, if you ever come visit, we have an espresso machine. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He gets one regular and one decaf, and he tells me that he drinks decaf because it's 4.30, and he like he always drinks decaf. And over the course of the interview, I realized that he has not been drinking the decaf. He, I think I have the decaf, and he has the regular <laughs> one. It was a great interview. We talked for like 45 minutes. He is a really cool guy. I think he's a great interviewer. He tries to put you at ease, and then we'll be like, have you heard any jokes? Like, do you know a joke that you could tell me? <laughs> and I'm like, that's how I know you're really caffeinated, man. But it was good. We walked around the office and the thing that stuck with me, and this is, I still tell like law students this whenever we're doing the OCI process, is that everyone he introduced me to had been in this office for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And I thought if you're going to work someplace, you want it to be somewhere where you can work for that amount of time. It's a testament to the organization. Exactly. Right. You stayed here on purpose for that long. And so that was it. They made an offer. I accepted it. That was it. I was suckered very early and I came back. And so for those who don't know, because I've covered this a bit on the podcast, but oddly, not everyone listens to every episode of this show, which I I don't fully understand. But so Foley combined with Gardier, I don't know if merger is even the right term. There's like a specific terminology for it. But about four years ago, the firms joined. So Gardier subsequently 
became Foley and Lardner. And then also Scott, I just want to say, who is wonderful and also the hiring partner in Houston has also been on the podcast. So anybody who wants to learn more about Scott, listen to episode 64. But he is great, obviously very, very involved with the Houston office. And just randomly and oddly, we actually were we went to the same college and were there right. for the same yeah, couple yeah, years. So even though I still actually have not had a chance to meet Scott in person, I feel a specific bond for him as an American University alum. All right. So Gardier for your 1L summer. And then I'm assuming you came back to Gardier, your 2L. I did. Summer as well. Yeah. And it's interesting post-merger because I think one of the reasons why Foley and Gardier combining work so well is culturally the firms were pretty similar. 100%. But I will say in terms of like, if we go through and talk about the ins and outs of every aspect of your summer associate time, parts of that may have changed just given that now, you know, the firm you're at has become part of a much larger national firm. Everything's kind of like nationally administered. But I would love just like a, a couple sentences or like 30 seconds or so at least on what that summer experience was like. I mean, either either or just general sentiments about how it was to be a summer associate at Gardier. Yeah. So I loved my summer. My first summer, it was a pretty small class. There were, there was one, one L was me and there were four, two L's and it just felt very close knit. We spent a lot of time together. There were a lot of events. It just feels so long ago that like, I don't really remember. <laughs> like I do. Well, no, you've since had practice yeah. push that out of your head, which we're right. going to talk about next. How did you start figuring out your practice area? Was it that exposure during being a summer associate? They asked me before I came on, hey, you're a 1L. Like, we don't really categorize you. Is there something that you're interested in? Do you want to try and do a little bit of everything? And I was like, yeah, a little bit of everything sounds good. But when I came in, my office was on the floor with all the litigators. And that was like, I did one transactional assignment <laughs> at, the very, at the very, very end of my summer because Jeff yeah. Bracken was like, is there anything you want to do that you haven't done? I was like, you know, I came in and I was told that I could do a little bit of everything, but I haven't done any transactional work. And it sucked. I hated it so much. <laughs> it was like, it was one thing that took maybe an hour and a half. And it was like the longest 90 uh, minutes of my that, life. That was the longest hour. Which yeah. I just, sorry. I I like that you had such a visceral reaction because oh, yeah. I, I do think there is a strong difference between those who are really engaged and interested in corporate transactional work and those who are litigators. There's, by the way, a number of practices that you could almost say fall in between because there's parts of, say, a bankruptcy or restructuring practice that are very litigation, others that are very kind of transactional. So once again, for the students listening, you may not have as visceral reaction or maybe one of these like other types of practice. But when it comes to those two buckets, often it's a very strong yes or no. Yep. <laughs> so that's that. And I was lucky because I, again, as you can see, there's a running thread of me not knowing what I'm doing with myself. But I was lucky and this decision was largely made for me. The universe was looking out for you. That's how it I'll, worked. It yeah, it, just, it happened to so work then, out. So then, as a two L, you know, coming back, litigation is what you want to focus on. I guess the other thing I'll add in is I don't think our process has changed a ton, even with now being you know Foley and not Gardier. And that if you come as a one L, often it is try lots of different things. Depending on the office you're in, it may be that you know one of the practice groups just has more for you to do. But often by the time you hit two L. You still might be in a position at Foley where it's try different things, tell us what you like at the end of the summer. But also depending on the office, it could be, you know, we're likely really going to have more of a corporate need here. And I just, I like to tease that out because I think sometimes students don't realize that that can actually vary by firm. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, in this office, so I think it also depends office to office, because in this office, we always have more litigation summer associates than we do transactional. And I think it's just because there's just more litigators here. And so they just need more new associates. Yes, that's absolutely right. And that's, I think, also the hard part is it's so important to figure out what practice you most resonate with. Like, what do you just like the most? But also for the students, like as law firms, we just have realities of where we're busiest, where we need headcount. So it's really the culmination of those two things. And occasionally, you know, practice group-wise shifting will happen later, just based on who needs support or later you develop interests. All right. So you are now talking to me as an associate in litigation at Houston, at Houston, in Houston. So what is your, and you've been practicing now for, I think you're closing, is it closing in on three years? So yeah, two and a half. I started in October. So okay, yeah. Yeah. So what is your, what's your practice look like? Like what sort of stuff do you tend to work on? So I, I feel very half and half lately. I do commercial litigation and I feel like I'm one of the associates in the office that doesn't do as much energy work as most folks. So like more bread and butter litigation, like you sold us this crappy product or you didn't pay us this money that you owe us or just business fights, business divorces. Business disputes. Well, and contract disputes Mm -hmm. or things like that. Yeah. So stuff like that. But I also... Because I had a period where I was very, very slow following some leave. I also have been kind of keyed in with Christopher Swift's practice in the DC Oh my goodness. Office. Yeah. And so I, I do a we lot got to of Jedi. that work. We got yeah. to Jedi, which sorry, reminds me of the other thing we will talk about is the whole, but you did end up in a big firm. Okay. Give the people what they want. What does Jedi stand for? What is that? Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations. So these are, I guess, in other firms are called white collar groups. So they're, you know, I got a subpoena from such and such government agency. The FBI came to my company's doors. We are a foreign client and we want to buy this U.S. company. And there are certain compliance and regulatory things that have to happen. Or, well, you can imagine. It's, 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 those are, those are yeah. all great, <laughs> all great examples. And, mm-hmm. you know, you heard when you said Christopher Swift, I, I laughed somewhat loudly because I do think he has one of the most interesting practice It's incredibly, group, incredibly practice. interesting. Yeah. And so also, so for listeners, Christopher Swift is a partner in our DC office. He was on episode 21 of the podcast. And I knew I had to get him on because we'd connected about something at the firm and I asked him about his practice and he said, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's like that the intersection of a Tom Clancy and a John Grisham, John Grisham. novel. Yep. And I know that's probably the line he tells everyone. And when you first hear him, you're like, okay. (laughs) But when you actually hear more about the ins and outs where it's like, you know, not saying this is a literal client matter, but an example of the type of thing you might need a Christopher Swift for is the manufacturing parts from your business were found at the site of an Iranian missile strike because, you know, we shouldn't be selling parts to Iran. But if the parts from your company end up there. Here's who you call. Christopher Swift can assist you with that. So it's very interesting that you've gotten looped into some of that. And I also suspect some of your foreign language expertise it did has not been hurt. useful. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we're getting some of that that Jedi work, which I'm mm-hmm. assuming is more more recently. Well, actually not so recently. I feel like solidly in the middle of my tenure here is when I kind of oh, interesting. kicked some in. That so. came in. Okay. Yeah. And I'll briefly tell you. So I started in October of 2019, as you can imagine, a kind of global event happened in the first part of 2020. And shortly thereafter, in Labor Day weekend 2020, I broke my leg. I was climbing a rock wall and I fell off the wall and I just 
broken into a lot of pieces. And (laughs) I went on leave and I think leave combined with the aforementioned global event meant that I was just so slow to come back. And I got a call from Armand Go one day. It was December or January or something. And he was and like... And by the way, Armand is one of the department operating... Or he's the department operating officer for the litigation department at the firm. But go on. He keeps watch over us. He knows when <laughs> things are bad and things are good. So he sensed that things were bad. And he was like, there's a partner in the DC office whose practice is growing like crazy. He needs a lot of help and he needs it everywhere. And he needs it now. Are you interested in international trade compliance? And I was like, What? What is that speed? You Googled Googled it? Yeah. Immediately. I opened, I, so Armin called me at seven o'clock my time. So I was absolutely still sleeping. So I opened a new tab on my phone and I Googled international trade compliance. And I was like, sure, Armin. Like, it's not, I was like, I was in a position to say no to any work. Absolutely not. I was like, yes, please. I will take anything. And I just got really lucky in that it happened to be really interesting work. It's no, I mean, it's super interesting work. And I don't know this, this, podcast I fully anticipate will direct people back to Christopher's podcast because they're yeah because they're and he's by the way just a really interesting person I would say he is smarter than most people I've honestly one of the smartest people I know ever met (laughs) so like the getting your JD at Georgetown while also getting your PhD at Cambridge level of smart type of person that's interesting that that is how you got looped into that it was just pure chance and there's a couple other things I want to hit on as we're talking. So one, you did end up at a really big firm because essentially merger probably happened, was it, would it have been before you graduated? Yeah, it was my 2L year. So between my two summers. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So technically you're even like sort of summering at, you know, at Foley. Right. But here you are and you thought you didn't want to be in a really, really large firm, but you are. Last time I checked Foley's around top 20 in size by headcount in the U.S. <laughs> that fluctuates year to year. But how's it been? Like, has it felt like a massive impersonal law firm? Or what's what's your general experience been like at Foley so far? No, I came back and it didn't feel any different because of course it doesn't feel any different when you're in office. And I think you only get the good when you come back. You get the bigger resources, you get the like wealth of knowledge that, you know, and incredible and varied practice areas that people have. And you get to really do whatever you want, especially as a young associate. If you say, I have an interest in X, somebody does X, Y, and Z, and all the way back to A through X again. <laughs> all of so, them. <laughs> so I, it's kind of a perfect sort of way to just, I feel like I snuck into a big firm. Like I didn't really, like, I didn't. Snuck in the back, snuck in the back door. I, I didn't, didn't mean to, but here yeah, I am. No one really noticed. And then I happened to be here, but I think best of both worlds for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And also as law students are navigating, you know, whether it be assessing Foley or other large firms, but sorry, I stress large firms. I said no. in a weird way, but um, it's really the people who are in that office. So, you know, whether it's 100 people or 3,000, your experience is crafted by the people that you're going to see day to day or in these, you know, COVID times, the ones you're commonly emailing and video conferencing with. Yeah. And you were right, absolutely, about the firms being a cultural match. Like, they really were. Like, Midwest and Texas is, you know. Absolutely. Like it worked out well. And I think for many, so I've I've started at Foley actually shortly after you started at Foley because I joined in December 2019. So Foley was already two years into that merger. But for large organizations like that, it takes a while for everything to start, you know, really be seamless. But it it always just felt like it went it went really well. And then for so for context, the listeners know, many of them at least know that I was a summer associate at Foley. So summer of 2006, which would have been five years after Foley had merged with a law firm called Hopkins and Sutter in Chicago. Right. 
And I remember as a summer associate five years later, there were still talks about, you know, how that merger went and like, you know, legacies related to that. And just by the way, in case anyone's curious, that is how Foley has its connection to Barack Obama, who was a summer associate in Hop- at Hopkins and Sutter. Like, I feel like that fun fact should just come That's out. So sometimes fact. I did not yeah, know that. That's Yeah. Cool. So we can <laughs> technically claim him by merger as having been a summer associate <laughs> at Foley. And then he went as, you know, I'll, I'll know where he meets Michelle is at another very large law firm. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. But as we sort of start winding down, I also wanted to get your general thoughts. One, I'm going to ask you for advice still. So these might be one and the same, but I want to just get a little bit of reflection for you about when you did start at a large law firm. Because like I said, I've had a lot of more senior lawyers on, so I don't tend to ask them, what was it like that first year? Or I do, and they don't remember as well. But it's, I just think it can be tough ramping up as a lawyer because being a law student is not being a lawyer. But so what was that like for, what was that experience like for you? I think it was probably still more unusual than somebody who joins as a summer associate is going to be right now just because of COVID. Like my ramp up like was steady until it fell off a cliff. (laughs) Well, and this is, I hate, this is almost like an interesting time capsule because 10 years from now, you know, when you are hopefully recruiting for people to Foley and Lardner still, someone's going to ask you, what was it like when you joined Foley? And you're going to say, well, you have to remember, I started right before the global pandemic. Right. So, yes. So the so everything changed. We mobilize. Everyone goes remote. You're still likely. You're still in that first year ramp up period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you you end up having to go out on leave. But since then, I'm sure there's been a lot of gaps you've closed, just skill development wise. And have you found that people are willing to like help and support you as you as you have questions? And you're trying to figure out, you know, how to do this law thing. Absolutely. I think if there's one thing you have to do is that you have to ask an absolute metric ton of questions. I think when you first start, and I st- you still fight imposter syndrome. I don't know when it goes away. It has not gone away for me. You're, but it like, could be another two to three years, just guessing. Yeah. But we'll like you, you heard my <laughs> snuck in comment. Like That's like still how I think. Like I somehow snuck in here. I don't really belong, but no one has noticed. No, Danya. We, we chose you. We claim you. We chose okay, you, but right. we understand. Go that's on. Fine. Go. But I think the, the best way to fight it is to have an idea you know, about whatever it is that you're doing, whatever project is you're working on and just walking into the person's office or calling them or Skype or whatever teams we use now and just saying, well, here's what I think, or here's what I literally don't know. Can you please tell me? I will never remember the first time, or sorry, I'll never forget the first time I ever did discovery responses and objections. I kind of just did them and I took them to the partner and he was like, have you ever done these before? And I was like, I have not done these before. He's like, Danya, if you've never done something before, you have to tell me that you've never done it. Otherwise, you're just going to spin your wheels and you're going to show me this thing that like, it's not very good. No offense. But like, of course, it's like, I don't want to be mean, but no, (laughs) (laughs) but you've never done it. So why would you know how to do it? And so I think you just really need to speak up. Like, don't be afraid. You're not pestering. If you're like, hi, I don't know how to do this. Can we talk about it? Or hi, I have this question. Like, it might sound dumb to you, but it's not. Because you don't know what you well, don't it know. Shows, it shows that you care. Exactly. But also going back to the importance of finding a place where you feel comfortable and you feel that you're in an environment where you can just send that email or walk walk in the door and ask. And then I also, I just, I like the like, have you ever done this before? And that who whoever said that to you, making you comfortable yeah. saying, okay, great, happy to help. But wait, what is that? <laughs> and have, maybe you've drafted that before and could send me an example. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So that's that's key, key, key advice that I hope all the junior lawyers and law students listening take. Um, but then, yeah, as we actually do start wrapping up, 
two last substantive questions is one, was there anything you wanted to talk about that you haven't gotten a chance to? And then after that, it's what's some like of your big picture takeaway advice for a law student or someone, someone early in their career? I feel like we've talked about all the good stuff. So I think we're good there. My big picture advice, I guess, for law students would be don't do that thing in law school where you have to take, you feel like you have to take all the bar classes so that you can get to the bar exam having taken marital property and commercial paper and all these things that, or that was, the, that's the Texas bar. I don't know about other places' bar exams. I think the thing that I did in law school that I look back on and I'm glad I did it is that I looked at the course schedule and I picked things that looked interesting and I'm glad I did it and I didn't stick myself in criminal procedure. Everyone always said, you got to take your bar classes and, you know, it's going to make your life easier. They'll teach you that. Barbary will teach you all of that. Barbary (laughs) teaches you everything you need to know. You just got to trust the process. And as a result, like I took some weird classes, like I took federal courts and like it's come in handy. I'm not going to lie to you. I took Spanish for lawyers. That was a great class. I took a written advocacy class in which like we actually wrote a motion for summary judgment and the professor graded it. And like, I had never gotten that kind of writing experience, but like it happened because I picked a random class. So that's my piece of advice for law students. That advice makes me so happy. You're validating me right now. Also, Danya, because I was talking to a law student just the other day. He had a question kind of like, what do I do now? And I said, you actually have the capacity to take things you're interested in and you're at a law school that's constantly bringing stuff. Like, I don't know if it's a Zoom with a federal judge or whatever, but like go to that stuff because you're Absolutely. not going to have the bandwidth to yep. do it later. <laughs> exactly. And then for young lawyers, because I'm still one, I like, and I have to tell myself this every day, and everyone will tell you this, being a sponge is so important. And whatever firm you're at, big or small, medium-sized, there's people around you that have been doing this for a long time and they have a lot to give and they want to give it. I always say this whenever I'm asking my 17th question of the day to a single individual is people love to talk about what they do and what they're interested in and lawyers love talking about their practices. And so to the extent that you want to do some niche sub area of law, you will find someone somewhere that does that and they will talk to you all day long about it. Yes. And it'll be a highlight of their day. I think that's also wonderful advice. Yeah. You just got to listen. You got to find people that will talk to you and got to take in everything they say. That is a perfect note to end on. Final, final question. If anyone has comments or questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. I think my email address is actually right on there. So it's not got a typo (laughs) in it or anything. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. This was a great conversation. I was happy to be here. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 